Postal Service and its law enforcement division are stepping up a battle against rising mail theft. Criminals are robbing letter carriers for their keys to steal mail and packages and to commit financial crimes like altering checks. USPS and its Postal Inspection Service are hardening blue collection boxes and working to curb change of address fraud. For details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with U.S. Postal Inspector Michael Martell. In the past few years, we have seen an increase in actually robberies of our letter carriers, which is alarming to us because it is the safety of our employees that are out serving our neighborhoods day in and day out. Robberies of our letter carriers for access to the U.S. mail to commit financial fraud, check fraud, things of that nature. In direct response to that, the Postal Service and the Postal Inspection Service have instituted sort of a holistic approach in dealing with all of these things, improving our employees' safety, improving the safety of the U.S. mail, and of course that improves the safety of the the customers as well, the, the American people. So we've expanded what we call Project Safe Delivery, which we announced back in May, It's a holistic approach to dealing with mail theft and mail-related crimes, everything from robberies over letter carriers and mail theft, parcel theft, to fraudulent postage in the mail system and fraudulent change of address requests through the mail. We're tagging those items from bottom to top, the Postal Inspection Service, along with the Postal Service, hand-in-hand to address the problem. The Postal Service is upgrading around 49,000 locks on our blue boxes, those blue boxes everybody has on their corner, where everybody likes to to drop mail off, where we're upgrading 49,000 locks this first year of Project Safe Delivery and upgrading over 12,000 blue collection boxes to those with the most advanced anti-theft features and security measures. There's a whole lot that goes into that. We're putting national assets where they need to be from coast to coast, really to deal with postal crimes in, in a local level, putting national assets in an area to advance local cases, arrest criminals that are perpetrating postal crimes and putting them behind bars. Given this increase in theft here, what are the concerns for customers, particularly their trust and their faith in USPS to uh, make sure that payment gets where it needs to go uh, safely and securely? The core mission of the Postal Inspection Service is the sanctity and security of the U.S. mail, Postal Service employees, and, and the customers themselves. We want the American people to have the utmost faith that if they're dropping that bill payment into the mail stream, it will absolutely arrive to its destination. And that's it's one of our top priorities. And that's why you're seeing really the announcement and push and this sort of holistic approach, not only to arrest those that are committing these crimes, increasing security measures and really awareness to stop people from becoming victims in the first place. So it's really an important solution end to end to increase the sanctity and security of the U.S. mail. And it's it's a top priority. One thing I've heard in recent months here is just the phenomenon of this change of address fraud where, you know, fraudsters will submit that change of address slip to intercept mail that way. And then in terms of that as a a vector for fraudsters to obtain these checks and, and commit the kind of fraud that they're doing, can you tell me a little bit more where we are with that? Has that also been on the rise as some other things have been? And what is the Postal Inspection Service doing to head that off? In the past few years, we have seen change of address fraud sort of increase to be used in a, in a number of nefarious ways. However, in the past few months, since the, the launch of the expanded project Safe Delivery, the Postal Service has stepped up 
security with change of address requests and instituted dual factor authentication items and different security items in place, depending on how you go about your change of address request. And almost, it seems, is 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 completely going to mitigate the issues that were appearing before as far as change of address request fraud has been seen. Very, very effective method to really stopping that. The shift, it seems, is to go from an arrow key system to, I guess, like an arrowless key system. How ultimately, under this new system, will uh, letter carriers be able to, to open those blue collection boxes? And, and how is this ultimately going to address this goal of fewer robberies of letter carriers and, and fewer instances of mail-related crime? As I said before, the safety of our carriers, our letter carriers out on the street delivering for America every day is a top priority. So getting too far into what's going to do what and when and where and how they're going to get into the box, that's kind of the reason we're in the jam that we are or, or seeing the, the issue that we are is because bad guys were keen to how best to get into our boxes and steal mail. And isn't this a great, easy crime? Can I do that? Uh, so I don't want to get too far into the weeds. But what I will say is that the Postal Service has researched a variety of options and moving forward with some of these new solutions. Those keys that were used before will not open a box without some other sort of item or authentication or whatever it might be. And what that does is it it devalues the key. It devalues the very thing those criminals looking to rob our letter carriers are after in the first place. So we're looking to increase safety for our letter carriers by employing a, a technological approach to the issue and really devalue those, those keys that we've seen in the past. I don't want to get into what exactly we'll do, what, when, and where for the carrier or what gets into the box, because that's exactly led to the problem we've seen now. That's that's going to be sensitive security information from the post office. I realize that this may be the vast minority of cases, you know, really an outlier more than anything else. But it occurs to me that in some very limited cases, you know, postal employees themselves might have a a, a hand in these kinds of schemes or in these kinds of you know, criminal situations. I, you know, I think it's good housekeeping for any business organization agency to have some sort of insider threat type program. What's going on there? Sure. Well, actually, the Postal Service has an, a, a second entire federal law enforcement division uh, to counter just that sort of situation. So the United States Postal Service Office of Inspector General, who I do not work for, uh, they investigate any and all uh waste, fraud, and abuse, and criminal conduct by Postal Service employees. As we said in the beginning, Postal Inspection Service wants to take every effort we can, every opportunity we can to sort of spread the message of postal crime prevention. I don't want anybody to be a victim of any sort of crime through U.S. Postal Service. I have a couple specific Postal Inspection Service mail theft prevention tips that I can share too. So First is is simple. Don't let incoming or outgoing mail sit in your mailbox. You can significantly reduce the chance of being victimized simply by removing mail from your mailbox every day. Then, um, of course, deposit that outgoing mail, uh, whether it's a bill payment or whatever important correspondence you're trying to send, inside your local post office in the lobby there at your place of business, if allowed. And you can also, of course, hand a letter directly to your letter carrier if you happen to see them. The other great sort of product from the Postal Service is you can sign up for informed delivery. 
informed delivery is literally an email you can receive from the postal service, which will preview images of what mail you should be expecting to receive in the mail. And that is, as you can imagine, a great tool to identify if something might be missing. Michael Martell, an inspector with the Postal Inspection Service, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy 
standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them re- really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed Uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, honest. Yes. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner 
than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.